You're listening to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is Idra Novi. Her new novel is Take What You Need, published by Viking. She's also the author of Those Who Knew, a New York Times editor's choice. Her first novel, Ways to Disappear, received the 2017 Sammy Rohr Prize, the 2016 Brooklyn Eagles Prize, and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. Her poetry collections include Exit Civilian, The Next Country, and Clarice the Visitor, a collaboration with the artist Erica Baum. Her fiction and poetry have been translated into a dozen languages, and she's written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, New York Magazine, and the Paris Review. She's the recipient of awards from the National Endowment of the Arts, Poets and Writers Magazine, the Penn Translation Fund, and the Poetry Foundation. Her works as a translator include Clarice Lispector's novel, The Passion, According to G.H. She teaches fiction at Princeton University. On the show, we talked about being a genre misfit, the lack of quotation marks in her work, subtext, the crossover from poetry and translation, and much more. Before we bring her on, I want to mention Patreon. If you've been listening for a while and have found the show useful to your writing process, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Consider becoming a supporter. Any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we're doing. Also, please leave a show review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help new listeners find the show. And now for my talk with Idra Novi. First off, let me just say how happy I am to talk with you um, about your book. And I, I should say that the desire to read it came from a New York Times review a, a month or so ago. And I remember reading it and reviews don't always pan out. You know, you read the review and then you read the book and you go, ah. but it, the book was so wonderful. I tore through it. And um of course, as I was reading, I couldn't help but wonder what the seed for the story was. Do you remember when you knew this was a book you had to write? And did it begin as a book or a shorter piece? Or maybe talk about that a little bit. Well, I it makes me very happy to know that the review sent you to read the book. You just never know how people will respond to reviews. But I love that review. Uh, Sarah Moss is a fantastic Irish novelist um, who, who wrote the novel. And I think that Ireland, you know, the, the divide there between Catholics and Protestants, which has gone on and their schools are still very divided. Um, I was reading today in the New York Times. And I think that she probably brought a really nuanced understanding of living in a divided country to this novel, though she's living in a different divided country. So I was so, I admire her work, but also I thought that was really interesting to have the perspective on this novel about, you know, estranged characters from someone living in a country which has also grappled with generations of, of estrangement. Um, as for the seed of this novel, it's probably multiple seeds, but I, I started this novel sort of 
an iteration of it um, before my second novel, Those Who Knew, which is also about a polarized country, but it's an, mm-hmm. the whole country is invented. It's an island nation where this is set where I grew up in the Southern Allegheny Highlands, but I just invented the town of Sevlik just because it became amalgam of where my mom grew up and where my grandparents grew up and where I grew up, you know, like I could kind of play with different aspects that I thought would sort of make a dynamic place for the novel. Um, But the seed really was that I had started out thinking I was going to do a nonfiction book Hmm. about a polarized town. And when I started interviewing people, I kind of coalesced in my mind that I wanted to take bits of the conversation and about, you know, parenting at a time when parents and kids don't actually may have the same mindset or outlook on the world. And um, when a time when we're so quick to write people off online and how that plays out offline, you know, and also thinking about what role art plays in um, somehow addressing these quick ways that we create barriers between people. And so as I was doing the interviews, my fiction self was like, you're not going to write a nonfiction book. I just think that the interviews actually, um, you know, I could spin them and make my own concoction as a novelist, which I think is why I love novels. They're very capacious. You know, you can, you can throw anything in um, that appeals to you. I don't, you don't have to stick to reality. I was curious about about the setting. I I was born in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which is like kind of maybe a little north of where your your um town is. But I did look it up. I'm like, is Seven like a real place? And my grandparents lived in Hollidaysburg, so oh, right. Okay, sure. <laughs> I my parents had you know real, I had friends there, so we used to go to Hollidaysburg. Um, but I haven't been back in years and years. And so I don't know what that area is like anymore. I know you can buy a house in Altoona for probably 20 grand. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, struggling, but I was so curious as I was reading, because I don't often, you, you don't find stories set there. No. And that was a struggle for me writing it. um, Because I wanted to get the regional dialect, that sort of Western Pennsylvania accent and cadence. And I missed it, you know, growing up, you know, there were certain phrases that people would use in foods as any region has them, but it was my region and it was your region. And I just never saw them in anything I was reading. And I think I was drawn because it was such a small place that I sort of got stir crazy. And, you know, I went and wanted to, I lived in Chile and I lived in Brazil and I lived in all these other places. And I think it took me a long time as a writer to circle back. And instead of being interested in other languages, I sort of brought my fascination with language to where I grew up, you know, Mm -hmm. but it took me two decades, I think, to circle back and say like, well, what are these things that are that, you know, I said as a child that were like, you know, these sort of regional um, phrases and how to make them come alive in in dialogue and and, in that like way that people who grow up in a similar place um, have these shorthand ways of speaking to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, well, speaking of all that, I mean, you're a poet, you're a translator, you're a fiction writer, and I'm curious what came first and how all of that works in terms of writing fiction. Oh, thank you. That is that is a great question. Um, I mean, yes, I am a genre misfit. I think probably because um, I started poetry first and then I became a poet and translator for a while, but I was always sort of doing fiction on the side. And I I wrote stories in high school, but, you know, I went to a small rural public school and I wrote a story and I saw a magazine that had a contest in it. 
And it required some, the English teacher to sign off that it was your work. So I gave it to an English teacher was my AP English teacher in my, you know, this small rural school that I went to. And I told her the date and she didn't give it back to me and didn't give it back to me. And then finally it was the last day to send it. I had already sort of missed it. She gave it back to me covered with these like red scrawls all over it. And it was devastating. And I, I was so confused why someone who was a teacher, the first thing about being a teacher is no harm, right? But here was this teacher, you know, at my public school who teaches English and had told me that she loved my writing and my interest, but then she, she sabotaged my opportunity to submit this story. It was very confusing. Um, I, to, even to this day, I like, I don't know if she didn't like my desire to want to think that my writing would be valuable to people outside of her classroom or, or like, why, why wouldn't she just sign off and let me send, send the story? I'd like, what, 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 you know, so I think there's these certain things from my childhood that like, they don't make sense to me. Like, why would you sabotage a student? I mean, I've been teaching for many, many years. I mean, I teach mostly college students at, you know, at Princeton and NYU, but just you, it's always about keeping the student engaged and excited. And I think that that is the core of teaching. And she, um, she failed as a teacher, you know, it doesn't matter whether I failed in that story or not, but it shows you how, when you are just figuring out your love of writing, I think how important it is for teachers to be careful and to make sure that they keep, you know, um, the door open. And why do they have to use red? <laughs> you know, like I, I will never use red on my, on my students stuff. Never. <laughs> so I don't know, like if it was that or other things that it took me so long to come back to fiction, yeah. Um, or there was something where I was kind of probably, cause I didn't read anything fiction, fiction wise about where I grew up. As you said, you grew up in the same area and it's just underrepresented. Like I think in the national imagination of this country, we tend to reduce Appalachia to stereotype, you know, we tend to look at it as sort of suspect in this, um, villainized way or, um, and so I think that that doesn't ring true. It's not very complex. It's, it has very little relationship to reality. And so those depictions didn't work. I think what we're especially missing, you know, are, are novels about, you know, that area of the Rust Belt, the reality, you know, that I grew up in or that, that you grew up in. It's just, it's just absent. And so I think I, it took me a while to figure out in other genres, how to capture those voices that, you know, are so ingrained from, from growing up and my family's still there. So I go back often and, you know, talk to them all on the phone. So they're like, it's a lived experience um, too. So I think all of that is probably why I was jumping around genres before this novel became possible. I like what you said that you're a genre misfit. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of writers are, and it's like, you try to fit into a category, you try to fit into a genre and maybe you're a little bit of this, a little bit of that, like take what you need was a little bit of a crime novel. Yep. You know, I mean, it's very much a literary novel and how it's written in the style, but there's, you know, crime elements. I don't know if you were thinking of that as you were writing it or if that's part of being a genre misfit. <laughs> that's a great question. I think in all three novels, and maybe that comes from coming from poetry or translation that I got to make sure that there's some element of suspense because I like that propulsive element. I think it keeps me writing. It keeps a sense of um, momentum in the novel. Um, and I don't think that's at odds with trying to ask deeper, more nuanced questions. In fact, I think if you have some element of suspense, it becomes like a clothing line, you know, like a top line, and then you can hang your ideas on it. 
So, you know, in Ways to Disappear, my first novel, there's an, there's a Brazilian writer who disappears into a tree, you know, and in the second novel, there's a woman who's literally pushed under a bus by a, you know, senator, a beloved left-wing senator who <laughs> privately is, is not the, the man he publicly presents himself to see, which is uncanny given that there were so many parallels then with Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, the Brett Kavanaugh travel and <laughs> Anthony Weiner and oh my goodness, it was, it was astonishing all the, all the real life parallels, but, and, and I think with this novel, there is the sense of, of, um, of the, of the supposed crime and then um, the assumed crime, you know, and, 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 and so um, trying to unpack the, the, the crimes we assume and who we assume is the victim, mm -hmm. because I think what I really wanted to write about this novel, especially after those who knew, which was definitely about sort of, um, you know, power imbalances, but in this novel, it's kind of an inverse of that power imbalance that those who knew was about the power imbalance between a male Senator and a young female, um, assistant, you know, and that's probably the more familiar power imbalance, but this one, it's more about, you know, this older woman and the power that she has and, you know, over a vulnerable young man who lives next door. And, you know, it, it made me uneasy to write about that because that isn't, it's subverting the expected power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what fiction has to do, right? Is to subvert those easy equational plots. So even though there is a crime, I would like to think that the novel seeks to, you know, complicate it in some way. Right, right, right. Well, that's what makes it so good. And just, you know, this, the, the, a different take on the stepmother story, right? I mean, yeah. I love that, um, you know, Jean, the stepmother, the artist is so complicated and, and, you know, as the story goes on and unfolds, you know, why she left um, Leah's father and what happened between Leah and Jean and, and the divide. And, and um, I, lo I loved how you didn't reveal it all at first. And I wondered, I mean, you know, you read on and little bits of the story emerge. And so, I'm curious about in terms of process, like, did you know all of that going in? Did you know how you were going to pace the story? Do you outline, do you figure it all out and then start writing? Or maybe talk a little bit about that, how, how the story came about in terms of the process. Uh, that's wonderful questions. And I think that I probably wrote a thousand words for the, no, thousand, not a thousand words for a thousand pages for the <laughs> thousand. Yes. You know, the a thousand words I like write that a day, but I mean, a thousand pages for the 250 pages that are here. And mm -hmm. I think because I come from poetry and in poetry, it is often easier to start over and just lift out a line and place it in the new draft. Cause it's short mm -hmm. then to sort of keep reconfiguring and reconfiguring. And so I think, you know, in my ways this beer had much, very short sort of each scene was kind of driven by an image or a sensation. And then the chapters got a little bit longer in those who knew. And then in this novel, I really wanted to sort of have this hot house aspect of staying with these characters together, isolated in the way that many of us were isolated in the pandemic. Like it was very much a hot house era where, you know, it's not a pandemic novel, but I did write it during the pandemic. And so I was thinking about relationships in isolation and how you're trying to get so many things from one person. And one person can't give you everything, 
you know, but when you're isolated, whether it's because of, you know, COVID or whether you're isolated because you're in a town that's empty to people and nobody else lives on your street. Well, how does that impact relationships? Um, and how, how can it happen? Maybe, you know, as it does for Jean and Elliot in this novel that, um, there can be an element of serendipity and beauty that you get close to someone that you wouldn't choose, or maybe wouldn't become close to if it weren't for isolation, but that can also go sour too, you know? And, and I think it does lend itself to unhappy and um, unhealthy power imbalances as happens between them. Although it's subtle, you know, there's the, the power imbalance is tacit. They both know it's there, but it takes them a long time to sort of address it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I love, I love the size. You, you said it's 250 pages. And um, to me, this is sort of a perfect size of a book because you know, you can read it in a couple of days. You aren't bogged down with 700 pages, which as wonderful as they might be, you're not going to be able to read anything else that month, right? So did you feel any pressure to make it longer? You said you wrote, you know, a thousand pages to get 250. Did you ever feel any pressure from an agent or editor to had it you know no I mean no no I mean I you know I think I write each line with the concision I would bring to a poem Mm -hmm. I like everything chiseled down to its elements and I think that work with each sentence of saying well what is the purpose of the sentence and what is the cadence and what are the internal slant resonances all of that to me is like it's delicious like it, it, it gives me great pleasure you know I, I struggle probably more to get the words on the page but then once I find them figuring out how there can be a sentence but then underneath it, it you know there's all these you know um it's like you know here's the ground and then underneath there's the speed of the subway so like how do you create that that ground when there's like all these other things transported beneath it so I think that that un- that unsaid thing that subtext which is what is what separates literature from everything else, that to me is, is, is the joy of writing. So I think that that was my approach to this. And, um, you know, some of the writers I translated, I translated the Brazilian writer, uh, Clarice Lispector, and mm-hmm. I, she also writes one sentence at a time and she always ups the ante, you know, like the beauty of reading her work, it's kind of, you know, exhilarating is that you really don't know what the next sentence will be. And she takes a risk. She, her, you know, she, she'll say something that is, um, surprises the reader and you get the sense that she's open to surprising herself as a writer. And I think that I try to do that so that if there is no surprise for me in the next sentence, mm-hmm. there probably isn't for the reader. And I delete it. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like if it's not deepening or furthering or, or, or daring in any way, well, what's it doing in there? Mm-hmm. And I find when I read many things that I have like my internal edit and I just, um, I just, I, my, my mind wants to delete things in books when there's just like explaining things that don't need to be explained. I think, I think, you know, in English in particular, we want economical writing. Like we value concision, we value spareness. Um, and as you said, like, I just think because we're on so many pages and so many things at once, I, I, I think that that spare writing is satisfying for me as a writer. And I, I hope it, nothing gets lost in it either. Like, I think a short book can have as much power as that 700 page novel. You know, I don't, I, I don't like the, that equational thinking that like page number is like power in terms of the, the experience for the reader. I have not found that to be true. I think there are short novels that stay with me in the deepest um, way. And they're long novels that I don't really think about. Yeah. I find myself um, skimming a lot with longer novels, you know, at a certain point past the midpoint, 
I start skimming and it's, and I'm thinking, why am I skimming? I've, I've liked it this, this far. Is it padded? You know, is this, is this writer padding it because it has to be a bigger book? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know why, but I find I skim a lot. Yes. Yes. But I think, you know, the, the poet in me doesn't, doesn't want to skim. I just only want the necessary sentences. And so I think that's sort of the bar I put for myself too, is um, if this, if you can't make a case for a sentence, if it's not furthering the themes or the sort of turmoil of the characters, it must go. It must go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, talk about um, writing the alternating points of view, because you have Jean, the stepmother, you have Leah, the daughter, and the voices are so distinct. I'm curious how you did that. I know both are first person. Jean is written in the past tense. Leah is in the present tense. Talk about that. I mean, did how did you how did you get them so distinct? You know, I wrote Jean's sections. I sort of knew that she would be, you know, you know, um, it would be written sort of after she was gone, but with such vitality to her voice and such like a vibrant relationship to art. And Leah's sections, even though maybe you could say she's closer in age to me, she's closer in sort of like basic mm-hmm. aspects of her life. She's in a bilingual family as I have. She lived in South America as I have, but she's definitely not me. She's, a, you know, a generation younger, sort of the Trump administration and the pandemic hit her at a very different time in life than it hit me. She's not a writer. There's many ways, you know, um, that we're not the same person. And Jean's voice, um, was inspired by a woman in my hometown who I got to know when I was doing that sort of nonfiction wander and interviewing people. And it was fascinating because I, the book became this excuse to have conversations I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And they were really illuminating conversations. And I think because it's my town and everyone I was talking to, I either knew them directly or indirectly that people had a candor that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so that led to the creation of um, Jean's voice and was, um, but for Leah, I think I probably threw away many, many, many sections until I figured out that there would be this way that she is just having these sensory memories of Jean and of her um, time living in the Allegheny Highlands as a child, as she's moving closer and closer to Jean's house. So that there is this convergence between the sort of present tense and the past, which to me, I think is how, I see time as I've gotten older and how I want to try and explore it as a writer. And um, writing is one of those things like, if, you know, if you're a dancer, it's sort of this finite amount of time until you have to switch to choreography, maybe, you know, <laughs> for certain kinds of, um, of moves. But the interesting thing as a writer is it's not like dancing. I think your moves can become wilder and more exciting as you get older and more assured. And there's things that you can pull off differently because you've just tried a lot of different things. And so I, I it, it did feel like an exciting risk to sort of have these alternating points of view and have them sort of have these sensory triggers that, you know, um, to, for the, the things that they both are thinking about because they have these shared memories, but they're living in such disparate realities. Mm-hmm. Did you know from the start it was going to be alternating points of view? Yes. I think there's something inherently democratic about multiple points of view. Mm-hmm. You know, all of us have a, you know, have our blind spots. And I think when I come up with characters and certainly for this novel, I was thinking a lot about Jean's blind spots and I was thinking about Leah's blind spots and how Leah and her urban reality is mindful of certain things and Jean and her reality in a sort of 
you know, a town where she, many of the houses around her are vacant. She's, her reality is quite different. And there's gunshots at night and she's, you know, um, a neighbor's using her spigot every day because they have had the water shut off and she's just living a very different reality. And so I think that everybody has blind spots. And what happens for Jean and Leah is that despite their long history of, you know, um, having this profound relationship of, you know, stepmother and daughter, that their realities are so far apart that they can't reconnect. Mm-hmm. And what I that? felt that the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just think that the, the, the contrasting points of view was a way that the reader might identify with Leah's point of view as someone who's coming from a city and is sort of aware of, you know, changing cultural conversations. And then Jean, who doesn't filter at all, has no interest in filtering. But that lack of inhibition also opens her up to making art in this sort of way that Leah can't access. Right. And the art that she makes, she makes these these towers that she welds, right? Yeah. And uses pieces of the past or things she finds at flea markets. Um, you're not a welder, I take it. I did learn to weld for this novel. You, you learned to, so talk about that. Like, when did you know she was a welder? And then I imagine at that point you said, well, now I have to take some classes. Well, she's a welder because I wanted to take welding classes. And I think, you know, (laughs) one of the things that can happen is if there's something you want to pursue, like I wanted to have these conversations in my hometown and I wanted to learn how to weld. So the novel sort of became (laughs) an opportunity to do these things that I was just feeling a strong desire to do anyhow. Um, And I guess that also happens, you know, when you're on a third novel, you sort of know that what will help me stay in the world of the novel is if there are things that I want to pursue, because I think because I switched genres and I switched languages and I've lived in Spanish and I lived in Portuguese and I've written poetry and translation. I like, you know, to, to mix it up and have, I guess what you would call the novice mindset mm-hmm. um, or the beginner's mindset, because all your synapses start going off. Um, and you don't, you can't become a sort of caricature of your last novel. If you keep introducing some element of the novel to which you are a beginner. Um, and for me, that was welding, I think with this book. And then the creations, the manglements, how did they come about? Well, um, I worked with several different um, metal artists. One of them was an artist, Norm Ed, who um, uses industrial discards in my hometown. And I wrote a piece, a profile about him for Orion magazine. Um, I think they called it narratives of um, discards and divides. And um, it's, it's, it's available on Orion. And Norm is a fascinating, incredibly sophisticated artist. And he makes art for and about Appalachia from the discards around him and has turned it into sort of like a lexicon for the region. But I also think he's found a way to make, you know, with scrap metal to sort of change the way we think about Appalachia in sort of an artistic way. And I found his work to be really inspiring for Jean's character. But the capsules that appear on the manglements came from um, uh, welder Julia Murray, who's a metal artist based in New York, who is also fascinating in her own right. She was the only woman on the welders union for the bridges of New York. And so she's a she's a renegade in her own right. And she took spoons and made those capsules. And I she showed me how she made them and said that I could use them for for the novel. So I sort of cobbled together sort of what I found is the most fascinating metal art among the different people that I work with. And I also work with a metal artist at the Center for Metal Arts in my hometown. 
There's a place that's in a former steel mill. And this is one of those forward looking things that we don't hear about, but we should, was that now there's artists who want to do foraging and who want to do, um, you know, welding who come from Europe and from all over. And they work in this former steel mill with metal artists there and they have fellowships. And so I went and worked with the metal artists there and made a box. And what was so interesting and became the core of this novel was that for Normed, you know, who's off the grid doing his art, for Julia Marie here in New York, and for the artist who runs this, Dan Neville at the Center for Metal Arts, each of them made a box in an entirely different way. Hmm. And so the six sides of a box, they went about it and were very sort of struck by the way that the other two made a box. And I thought that was so telling that the nature of a box could be up for discussion. You yeah. know, it's everything's up for discussion. And so that sort of became part of Jean's art and the novel. Are you still welding? Well, Julie is now at RISD, but she's coming home. And um, Norm in his studio in Johnstown in my hometown, I'll, I'll probably do some welding with him this summer too. I hope to keep doing it. I think it's, I like torching things. <laughs> Well, you know what, what you were saying about, you know, these different boxes, it's sort of like writing, right? Like you can give, you know, a number of writers the same prompt or the same seed, and they're all going to come up with something different because sometimes new writers worry about their ideas being stolen. It's like yeah. somebody can take it and they're going to do something entirely different. From what Absolutely. You yes. Yes. And um, if an idea is so easy to steal, then maybe you need to do something else with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had another question about Jean because Jean is, I think, 60 or so, 62 yeah. or something. And she thinks of herself as elderly. And here in Southern California, you know, 62 is not elderly. And so I'm curious if that is Again, the area, because it's a downtrodden area, do people age quicker? Do people feel older? Are they older than maybe other parts of the country? What a fascinating question. Um, <laughs> that is the first, yeah, but, but I think you're absolutely right. That, yes, I agree that I think living in a place with severe winters Mm -hmm. where you have to shovel your steps and you have to shovel your driveway and you have to get in sort of a bone cold car and wait for the engine to start. And, you know, all of that, it does wear a person down, you know, and she's also welding with big scraps of metal. And, you know, even in I'm 45 and, um, you know, I, when I was doing, I felt it in my shoulders, like holding, holding the TIG torch, you do feel it. You know, mm -hmm. and I was working beside Dan, who Dan Neville at the Center for Metal Arts, and he's, you know, 10 years younger than me, but he's also male and he has like a very different, you know, um, musculature than I have, you know, at 45 after two children. And so his stamina was just very different. So I think for Jean, it's the physical limitations of where her body is. Um at that age. And it also came up a lot with Julia Murray, the, the, the metal artist I mentioned who was in the welders union for the bridges in New York, because, you know, she was, she, they often would give her the sort of meticulous work on the bridges and wouldn't give her the sort of more exciting work to do. And in some cases they were wrong and she could absolutely do it, but she was starting to have sort of chronic issues after 10 years of like heavy welding work. And I think that wears on the body too, you know, like you're demanding a lot of certain, um, you know, muscles in the body. And so I think if you overdo it, your body kind of tells you it, mm -hmm. it in a ways that when you're younger, it, it, you can kind of deny 
fatigue in a way that I think the older you get, it's harder to deny the body speaks. (laughs) The body does speak, doesn't it? Very loudly. Um, The dialogue, no quotation marks. Talk about that decision. I love these questions, Barbara. This is <laughs> fantastic. Lots of new ones. Um, so I think because I, you know, was just I mentioned earlier, translating Polidisi Lispector, and um, I translated, um, I just translated Nona Fernandez for the Yale Review, who's a fantastic Chilean writer, doesn't use quotations. And I think that that is just how I think about writing because you write what you read. And in, you know, the literature that I've translated, there are no quotations. And I love reading literature and translation. And I'm often, you know, um, working as a, you know, as a judge for international prizes. I'm, I'm a judge for a prize right now. And I'm, you know, whatever, got 40 novels that I'm, I'm reading for. So a lot of the reading that I do, the books I review, I review books for The Atlantic and for um, The New York Times. And they're usually books in translation because I, having done translation, it's something that I'm very comfortable with. And so um, and thinking about the issues of the writer's voice and the translator's voice. And in none of those books, in most of the world, literature has no tran- no quotation marks. I think it's in many ways only expected in commercial American fiction. Hmm. It is not as expected elsewhere. And so if you read more widely, if you read beyond commercial American fiction, much of which does sound the same in other ways beyond the use of quotation marks. You just get used to it and you don't miss them. But I think for readers who stick to domestic commercial fiction, then it's a shocker. But I think anyone who's reading beyond that, you, mm-hmm. it, it just is like, there's something where it all stays in a piece. And, and the quotations marks to me just feel clunky or that you it, it pulls you out in a way um, that doesn't feel natural to me because the writers that I write back to don't use them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I never felt lost, you know, oh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, where are we? But I noticed right away because there is sort of a different flow to the words too, without quotation no. marks, you know? Yes. That flow, that is a good word for it. I do think there's a flow that I find as a writer and a reader is lost when things are set apart. And I find this like kind of heavy handed way, but if you're used to it and that's how people write, then that's, that comes naturally to them. But I think from all the books that I read and that have informed my writing, that this is what flows for me. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like reading from the book? Do you want to read a few pages? Oh, I'd be happy to. It's right here. Okay. (laughs) And we're talking about Take What You Need by Idra Novi and the publisher's Viking. Oh, and your editor, Andrea Schultz was my editor on Pen on Fire, which I think you can oh. see the, the um, right there is the book cover. And I love her. She's, she's, so, she's so smart. So smart. Okay, let's hear you. Okay, um, maybe I'll just read a little bit from Jean's section, her first okay, section of yeah, the novel. That'd be great. And this talks a little bit about boxes, which we were discussing earlier. Okay. I'd had it with the new mailman. He kept peering in at me through the screen door like I was up to something indecent, sculpting cocks like Louise Bourgeois. I didn't have the forging equipment to weld anything cock-shaped. I was no Louise either. I was just trying to master the nature of a box. Everything I made was flat and six-sided, and I didn't need the new mailman snickering at any of it. I also couldn't keep the front door shut, not once the metal got molten enough to start releasing its fumes and the argon gas from the TIG torch was doing its inert magic to the air. I tried to take the high road at first. I said, please, and called the new mailman by the name on his uniform. I said, Kenny, could you please just leave the mail on the front steps, even if it's pouring? I told him I didn't care if my bills got soggy. 
Kenny said, sure, and then went on doing exactly what I'd asked him not to, creeping up to the screen door to spy on me. When he got here yesterday, I was sawing the heads off a new batch of spoons. I used the spoon heads for the capsules I started brazing onto my boxes to add a few lumps of surprise to the sides. I knew who at the flea market tended to have silver spoons. The silver ones were far softer to saw through than stainless steel. The real fun, though, was choosing what to place inside the spoon heads before I welded the capsules shut. I sealed all sorts of things inside. Bits of photos, the buds of pine cones, whatever. I damn well pleased. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, did you read, do you read your stuff aloud as you're writing or after you have a draft? Um, I think I, yes, I think I have to murmur it to myself, mm -hmm. especially alternating perspectives, because I think that just like when I'm recreating the voice of another writer as a translator, I think I had, a, I use those same tricks to figure out the different voices for Jean and for Leah. And I think a lot about their sensibility and how you can find it in the syntax. You know, mm -hmm. Leah's constantly self-correcting. She's constantly correcting her sentences because she lives in an urban place and getting on the subway. She says, excuse me. Oh, 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 excuse me. Like she's around other people all the time. So she's self-correcting. She's accommodating other people's impulses. Whereas Jean's not around anyone. And so her sentences, you know, are like, sprung they just go and she and so I thought well how can I recreate that in the at this at the level of syntax in each sentence where you when you switch turn the page you know exactly who you're reading because the sentence itself you know cues you to who's who's whose mind you're in and then the the third major character is Elliot yes talk about Elliot and where he came from he's so vivid um he says hardly anything during the whole book, but his presence is so there, so powerful. So he's so much of a presence. That's that's really um, beautifully articulated. And yes, I think when I was thinking about this estrangement between Jean and Leah and about urban rural divides and um, about, you know, this estrangement that Jean sort of didn't attempt to cause, but, you know, as a stepmother, she had no custody rights. So there's like a real pain there that I think can happen for step parents and stepchildren that they're not able to keep a relationship going because the law sort of doesn't, um, set it up the way it does for biological parents. But what happens with Elliot is I think that their relationship to, to men and to patriarchy is what um, becomes this divide between them, a wedge between them. And sort of what they fight over is Elliot, you know? And their differing views of whether he's worthy of mercy. And Jean, because she lives next to him, sees him as worthy of mercy. But I think for Leah, he's abstracted for her, right? She sees him in this sort of conceptual way as categorical person belonging to a category that she doesn't think is worthy of mercy, you know, of these sort of rural young men that she sees as sort of being an obstacle to the progress that she wants for the country. And so she can't see Elliot outside of that, even though in many ways, he's more politically aligned with her than she would think. But she doesn't she doesn't, there's, she doesn't expect that that could happen. And, and, and there's reasons in the novel for why she doesn't, but um, I don't want to give away too much, but I think what I really wanted to explore with Elliot is that, you know, where I grew up and even my own brother is like such a gentle guy. I mean, yes, he lives in a rural town, but he spends a lot of time foraging for mushrooms and making soup. But if you saw him sitting somewhere and because of where he lives, maybe a stranger would assume things about my own brother, which would be vastly incorrect. You know, yes, he has a goatee, you know, yes, he'll wear a hat, but 
all he really wants to do is look for, you know, like um, turkey tail mushrooms. Like he's, he's a threat <laughs> to no one. He's, he's like not an angry person. So, you know, it's interesting how we can sort of reduce people that way. And I, I wanted to write about that and sort of like a lot of the gentle, you know, rural guys that I knew growing up and still know, you know, um, in my garden where my, my family lives, there's a guy who comes and loves to work with monarch butterflies and he plays a mean ukulele. He is a phenomenal ukulele player and taught my son to play his ukulele after summer camp. But if you saw him walking up with his handkerchief on his head and the way he was dressed, I could see how someone, if you didn't know him, would make those unfair assumptions about him too. And so I think there was a number of reasons where I wanted to write about um, you know, a young rural white man who um, subverts the accepted stereotypes that we have for young rural men. And um, that was sort of where the idea for Elliot came. And I think that subverting stereotypes is what literature has to do. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't, then it's not really reaching that level of literature. I think that that is um, how characters come alive is by being an anomaly in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. characters have to be anomalies, right? They have to have something or many things about them that are distinctive and that, that are more than just, um, you know, a demographic. Yeah, we're so quick to judge, aren't we? And, um, you know, it's so true what you say about literature, what, what it, part of what its purpose is, I think. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, we are coming the end of our time. And I am curious, um, well, if you have any advice or words of wisdom for the writers listening who may be kind of um, um, barreling through a draft or trying to, or trying to see the end and trying to reach the end and worried that they're not going to reach the end. And, you know, all the, all the worries writers have when, when they're mid-project. I would say that if something feels a little risky, if it makes you feel an uncomfortable to write towards it Hmm. as opposed to away. And that I think that when you take a risk and something feels uncharted for the writer, that that's when something probably is worth pursuing. Um, and that we're often told, write what you know, but I actually think that that is, of course, like any platitude, probably the inverse is true, is to figure out what you don't know. And that I think that that's the job of a writer. What didn't you know that you didn't know? And Mm -hmm. I think for me in this book, it was like, well, what don't I know about where I grew up? What don't I know about what it means to be a woman who chose to stay there? What it means to be a rural artist? the benefits to that, that perhaps I was blind to when I fled at 18, (laughs) you know, like what art would I have made if I had stayed? Would I have made no art at all? You know, talking with Norm Ed, this artist I profiled for Orion, I learned so much, you know, like there are freedoms that he has making art there that I feel probably, you know, sort of thinking more in in, in national ways that um, maybe I am more circumscribed, but in other ways, there's other ways that I am freer, that he's not like, we've had a lot of discussions back and forth about the pros and cons of staying or going. And I think it's really um, expanded my imagination about how you can take risks wherever you are as a writer or as an artist. And mm-hmm. um, and that like the whole thing of writing what you know, I, I do think it's very important to push against that and figure out what you don't know and how can the novel or the story be a pursuit of that um, unknowing. 
And also, um, you know, what you talked about earlier in terms of, you know, you thought you were going to write a nonfiction book, right? And you started interviewing people and then it led into this fictional project. That's interesting too, you know, just sort of being open and, and paying attention to your, your interests or where, where something's leading you and to not remain fixed in the original um, idea, perhaps. Yes. Yes. And I, and I, and I think that probably whatever the initial idea is, it should fall away Mm -hmm. and uh, allowing it to fall away may lead to a project that is a little messier and riskier, but that is, you know, then you come up with something that is a surprise for you and will be a surprise for the reader. And, and I think that that's what you have to pursue is that uncertainty. Hmm. And you will be out here next week. Um, I the- will be. Yes. Yeah. LA Times Festival of Books. It's Sunday. Your panel's on Sunday, I think. Yes. It's on Sunday at 2 p.m. It's a ticket event indoors on American Gothic. Great. I'll be there too. And I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us. Thank you so much for your fantastic questions. And I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting you at the LA Times Book Festival. That'll be great. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you also to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. You can find it by searching Just My Type. You can also access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Stay in the chair.